If you listen to this podcast and follow what we do at Troutbitten, then you're a thoughtful angler, and you don't accept the status quo simply because that's how it's always been done. Squall of Fishing designs and creates fly fishing apparel with this same philosophy. Squalla was started by a group of lifelong fly anglers who spent their careers working for some of the biggest names in the outdoor industry, and they understood that essential fly fishing apparel like waders, jackets, sun gear, and insulation could simply be better. So now, Squalla makes gear for us, the like-minded few, serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. Check them out at squallafishing.com. Water is essential for life, but for Orvis, it's the blood of the brand. Orvis has been the leader in fly fishing since 1856. No other brand can match the explorative and innovative spirit they bring to the water today. Everything at Orvis is about inspiring and empowering adventure and wonder in nature. Rooted in the vitality of fly fishing, fueled by passion and curiosity for the outdoors, Orvis designs and develops products and experiences providing the knowledge and expertise to enable more meaningful moments and connections in nature. With over a century and a half of experience in the field and on the water, Orvis seeks to ignite that passion in others. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Yeah, Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. It's about trout. Wild trout. This is Trout Bitten. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Dominic Swentoski. I'm the owner of Trout Bitten and the author of TroutBitten.com. Welcome to Season 10 of the Trout Bitten Podcast. This is going to be a good one. With Season 10, we return to our popular skills series format, where each episode is dedicated to a narrow part of just one topic. And our topic for this season is critical nymphing concepts. Now, my friend Austin is here with me this season, and together we have seven parts lined up for you. In these seven episodes, our goal is to highlight and cover the most important principles for successful nymph fishing. Now, two years ago, we walked through the nine essential skills of tight line and Euronymphing. That podcast series mirrored the article chapters that I had published on the Troutbitten website. In a moment, we'll recap those episode topics, but let me point out the difference here. Those nine skills are where good tight line and Euronymphing starts. They are the baseline skills that, once developed, put trout in the net regularly, like you catch a lot of fish. <laughs> Austin? I like how you said you catch a lot of fish. That you, was directed you. to me, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So working on those I skills. I was listening. <laughs> you thought, <laughs> it looked like you might not have been listening. <laughs> Pay attention. Well, I'll introduce you properly in a moment. <laughs> anyway, working on those skills not only leads to success on the river, but it brings a sense of control over the system. You feel like you have command over where the fly will go and how it will drift. And that is rewarding even in itself, just getting good drifts and seeing that you can do what you want to do with the fly because it's fishing and making something happen. We say this a lot. It's not just casting in line and hoping something will happen. So we had the nine essential skills series a couple of years ago, and that's there for you to go back and check out. It was season two of the podcast. There's also a companion article for each of those chapters. And now this skills series is about the critical concepts of nymphing. 
what we will cover in the next seven episodes is more about the what and the why of nymphing, while the nine essential skills was about the how. The nine skills, it was about casting and drifting. But these nymphing concepts are more about putting a reason behind everything we do. This is the other side of the coin, really. And once you put all of this together, you have a full picture of what it takes to regularly catch trout on a nymph. So in a moment, we'll run through the topics that are to come in this series. But first, I want to introduce my friend and co-host this season, a proper introduction for Sir Austin Dando. Hey now. How we doing, buddy? I'm all right. You said it before we uh, hit record that we're back quick this time. We are back. Uh, I said before, you know, we finished around Christmas time, and normally there's maybe a month break in between. Is that right? Yeah, we usually like about a month, four or five weeks. Yeah. But not this time. We're back a little early and with intention, aren't <laughs> That's we? That's right. <laughs> so um, Dominic and I, Troutbitten, has a trip planned to Patagonia come the first week of March. Hey now. And that trip was with an outfitter uh, called Set Fly Fishing. They have a lodge down there. Mm-hmm. And they invited us down to come visit and experience what they offer. And um, with the intention of potentially bringing some of our Tropitan fans, readers, listeners, friends uh, down with us someday. So mm-hmm. we're going to go do some R&D, a little fishing, uh, <laughs> a lot of fishing, and uh, come back with good stories to tell. Dude, I hear it's all big trout all the time that eat only dry flies and streamers. That's what I was told. That's, that's what they told us. <laughs> I know it kind of is. And, and they're pretty convincing about it too. I know. And you and I, we have friends <laughs> that have been there, right? Yeah. And yeah. Eh, those are the stories people come back with. Pretty much the protocol. You have to wonder what mm. would happen if you took your, your mono rig down there and you waited out in the middle of the river and decided that you're going to nymph some of these fish up. What do you mean? What would happen? I'm doing that not, at least not, for half a day. Sorry, let me reframe the question. <laughs> Would you be given funny looks for fishing that way versus uh, you're not you're not throwing the draft you're not throwing the the streamer in the bright sun? You know that yeah. works. <laughs> oh, it works That's here. Right. We we don't care about the funny looks. <laughs> but I am no, interested. I've told you guys like when Dad and I went to Montana uh, the first and second time fishing, you know, some of the rivers that Matt fishes now and lives right beside. Um, I planned on fishing nymphs a lot, but man, they're eating dry so well. Yeah. That's all I fished. I hardly even fished right. streamers. Kind of driving home, I was like, man, I probably should have fished streamers a little bit more, but I didn't feel like, oh, I, sh- I missed fishing nymphs. No. Yeah. I, and it's not even that I like dries better. It was just that, wow, these, this is a great opportunity. Just like fishing around here, we've acknowledged this. I love fishing dries uh, if it's a viable tactic for the moment, yeah. right? Yeah. If it makes sense. And if I got big brown trout coming up to eat, you know, to slurp on top, mm-hmm. that's what How I'm badly are you going to want to stop doing that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Twist my arm <laughs> to keep fishing dry. Tough. It's a big trout on top. Yeah. They say they'll eat mice in the daytime sometimes. I got to test that theory. You should test that theory. What do you think? Uh, they, I don't think they said they, they night fish very much there. Oh, that's, maybe we should that, test that. There's probably we, some predator though at night that'll eat us. I don't like think Grove so. doesn't uh, do it because of the grizzly bears out there. What do they have? No, down? no. I asked them what the their what their predator threat was, and it's it's pretty low. Mm. Sounds like a safe place. No boars, no wild boars. I don't think so. <laughs> okay, but I can run faster than you, so I'll be mm. okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I think I can. Snakes? Are there nasty snakes? No, because you don't like snakes, so there's no snakes here. Oh, that's good. 
All right. Yeah. So Austin and I are going to Patagonia. We're very excited about that. And uh, yeah, that's why we're starting this series maybe about two weeks earlier than we normally would. So we have seven of these lined up for you. And let's do a quick overview of this season just to let you know what to expect from this Critical Nymphing Concepts series. You like that title? Critical. Critical. It's like life or death. Well, you know what? Because we did the nine essential skills. Yeah. And I was, you know, there, and we acknowledged there was so much more to, to talk about. Started really thinking about this. And again, we're kind of differentiating between skills and now concepts. And I was like, because mm-hmm. mm. a lot of the stuff okay. to talk about next, I write about it too. It isn't the skills as much as like, well, why are you making this decision? And you're going to, you're going to drift this differently or you're going to cast differently, but why? And so that's what we're going to get into. How do you draw that conclusion? Right on. And the other thing is, I hate to use the word advanced. You know, those were nine (laughs) essential skills or baseline, you know, skills. Yeah. You know me. I hate the word advanced when it comes with Mm. fly fishing. Not saying I'll never use it, but eh, it's just fishing, right? Yeah. I think we we both feel that way. And I think of uh, a lot of our friends feel the same way. Yeah. Often we joke about that. This is advanced stuff, guys. Oh, yeah. It's elite. (laughs) <laughs> those are two different things though they there are, are different it, levels it's fair you take a beginner out yeah. there and you're not gonna be talking to them about the stuff we're gonna talk about here in this skills series yeah of these critical concepts it's just how serious you decide to to make it for sure so we acknowledged a few minutes ago that we enjoy nymphing because it works <laughs> in so many different scenarios and it's a challenge we already dedicated a podcast to this question of what is harder to achieve whether it's good drifts on a dry fly or good drifts with a nymph, which one's tougher. And without a doubt, during that podcast, we all agreed that nymphing is tougher. Now, I think everyone agrees that nymphing, even like subpar nymphing presentations, may very well produce more trout. But that doesn't mean it's an easier thing to achieve, meaning the good drifts aren't necessarily easier. Yeah, we went through all that. But when you take all seasons, all the days on the water, and combine all the opportunities, And yes, nymphing meets the trout on their own terms more often than any other tactic. It's what they eat most. And to be honest, if you think about this, lousy nymphing can sometimes outperform good dry fly drifts. Right on. Especially when trout aren't very willing to move up and to feed on the surface. So we love nymphing because it's complex. Because it's the art of the unseen. And because when you improve the presentations and really concentrate on getting natural looks to the trout, you can double or even triple your success. So that's where these critical concepts come in. Because great nymphing presentations come from attention to the details. After the cast, what happens to the fly? That's kind of where we are. So understanding and following these concepts helps us lay out some of the goals for how the fly should look under the water. So all right, here are the episode topics for this season. Austin, you want to run through them? Yeah, for sure. All right, so episode one, and this is what we're going to cover tonight, Right on. are the three questions. The three, the big three. The three key questions to ask yourself mm-hmm. uh, anytime you're out fishing nymphs. Uh, these are three questions that lead you to answers for every problem out there. Yeah, for sure. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right, episode two then is uh, more influence or less. Do we want to have more influence to the flies or less? Like We get to make that choice. That's up to Right on. Episode three is suspension advantages. So uh, the pros of using different styles of suspension uh, devices or rigs to meet trout. Right on. And the way that that, the suspenders, you know, can change the presentation, sometimes help it, sometimes hurt it. 
Now, episode four will be three ways to dead drift. I've written about this a lot. We've talked about it even before on the podcast, but not so specifically. Three ways to dead drift. There are also three zones to cover, and they very much kind of go hand in hand. Get to that in episode four. Episode five is going to be all about weight, the fundamental factor, and what Dominic affectionately refers to as the original sin of fly fishing. <laughs> that's true. Wait, the thing that. that's yeah, the thing that's at the end of our line. Right on. Gets you down. If you're not fishing on the surface, you have to have weight. Yep. There's weight. As soon as you're not on the surface, weight is necessary. Anyway, that's the fundamental factor. Episode six then is uh, floating the cider and managing line on the water. I might kind of change that title by the time we get there. But the point <laughs> is, sometimes we choose to lay line on the water. Uh, with various styles. We're going to talk about that in a second. But we choose to lay line on the water on purpose, with intention. And when we do, again, how does that help or hurt the drift? And, you know, how do we manage that? Again, a concept. Line on the water, line off the water. How do we deal with it? And the last episode, episode number seven, is other than a dead drift. So this is something that you can catch trout with something other than that is a dead drift. So either animating the fly or moving it across uh, seams or or doing something in ordinary other than just trying to get a dead drift on a fly that could uh, entice a trout. Right on. I wrote an article not too long ago titled, Are We Making Too Much of the Induced Take? Because everybody (laughs) wants to tell me, well, I was, was, you know, I was trying to induce a take because I was moving that nymph. Mm. Your baseline ought to be a dead drift. And I don't think there are too many good anglers out there that would disagree with that on a nymph and a dry fly. Basically, yeah. you, you should definitely focus on being able to get a dead drift. And then when that doesn't work, you know, come off of that dead drift, come out of that dead drift and do something else. We'll talk about that in episode uh, seven. All right, there you go. That's all seven topics of what's to come in this season. So in a moment, we'll get into those, those three big questions. That's our real topic for tonight. Whether it's after a fishing trip or at a backyard fire, you can bet the Trout Bitten crew has a case of New Trail Broken Heels along with us. It's honestly our favorite beer. This hazy IPA is smooth and full-bodied. Hand-selected citra hops lead to notes of bright clementine and juicy ruby red grapefruit. Broken Heels is a keeper. New Trail Beer is proudly brewed in Williamsport, Pennsylvania and delivered cold to your favorite craft beer retailer every week. At New Trail, it's not about being the best angler. It's about getting out there. So enjoy nature's moments and reward yourself for a day well fished with New Trail Broken Heels. It's Trout Bitten's favorite beer. To tie the best flies, you need the best materials. With decades of commercial fly tying experience, Fooling Mill understands what it takes to tie a great fly. Over the past several years, they've worked hard to source and prepare a range of fly tying materials that will elevate your experience at the vise. Fooling Mill fly tying materials have arrived with a range of over 1,400 products. You'll find the staples like marabou, bucktail, and rabbit sonker strips. You'll also find CDC, stripped peacock quills, 12 dubbing ranges, synthetics, chenilles, yarns, and wools. All fulling mill materials come in an extensive range of colors that are consistently dyed. So what you receive from them tomorrow will be the same color next year. Their materials go through a rigorous quality control process. So before they're packaged and shipped out, you can be sure they're up to the highest quality standards. Ask for Fooling Mill fly tying materials at your local dealer or find them online at foolingmill.com. Before we move into the critical nymphing concepts, let's just real quickly recap the nine essential skills of tight line and urine nymphing. Yeah, that sounds good. Again, this was season two. 
of the podcast, and there's a companion article for each one of these topics. Yeah. Episode one was all about angle and approach, uh, which Mm -hmm. is the first step in order to actually reach the trout is we have to put ourselves in a proper position uh, and orient ourselves in a way that we can create a uh, effective drift. Right on. And remember, this was about tight line and nymphing, specifically that style of fishing. Um, And our second essential skill was turnover and tuck casting. Having a good cast, gets out to the end, goes all the way to the end, can't go out anymore, turns over. And then, of course, it's not going to go up. Gravity takes it down. You can force the fly down in. You get a good tuck cast. But even if you don't want a deep tuck cast, you always want that turnover. We went through that in episode two of that skill series. Right on. So the next thing is sticking the landing. Once those flies turn over and enter the water, it's up to us then to stay um, up with those flies. So basically Mm. uh, moving in tandem with the end of that cast and putting yourself in a position again to start to be able to move the rod tip or raise the rod tip to stay in touch with the fly. Right on. And seeing what that sighter is doing, Mm -hmm. being able to control it. And the way we get to that control was the fourth episode, which was recovering slack. We talked all about that and how important it is to be able to recover slack, three different ways to do it. And then there was episode five. Yep. Episode five was about finding contact. So after that uh, slack is recovered, it's Mm -hmm. then up to us to find the flies. Um, And that is done through tracking with the rod tip or leading with the rod tip and uh, getting an awareness of where our flies are throughout the drift quickly. I like it. And you know what? You pointed out somewhere along, uh, somewhere along the course of that skill series, that all five, all of those first five skills happen in, (laughs) would you say, a second, you know? Yeah, snap second. Yep. I guess the angle and approach is important. You know, that kind of happens first. But all the other stuff there happens, like you say, in like a half second. Yeah. That was a good point. Now, episode six of that nine essential skills series was about locating the strike zone. And we're going to talk a little bit about the strike zone, even tonight. But yeah, it's that zone where most of the good stuff happens in the river. And how we can see the strike zone, we'll see the effect of the strike zone on our cider, even without touching the bottom. Right on. Episode seven is all about guiding the flies. Mm -hmm. So throughout the drift, we're in control of where that fly goes. And uh, we get to decide where it ends up. Ideally, it comes out of the same lane it was entered into. In episode eight, we talked about the strike. And we said how the fish strikes and then we strike. We separated both those things. Nice. Yeah, we strike back. (laughs) That's right. We strike back. I like that. Yeah. And then episode nine was? So episode nine was putting it all together. Uh, Again, those split seconds of moments one after another. Uh, when you break them down, you know, I was thinking about this earlier, actually. Mm. Um, if I could have listened to that series 10, 12 years ago. I know. Oh, my gosh. That would have been, uh, and maybe it's it's funny to say it myself, but I wish I wish that resource was there to listen to because I had so many questions and so much of a mystery uh, to actually breaking it down into those step-by-steps where just throwing my fly out there and, and trying to figure out where it was you know, yeah. wasn't good enough. Um, so episode nine is about putting all those steps together, uh, for a good drift. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I, I know a lot of people have told me they've listened to it multiple times, you know, the whole series multiple times, (laughs) which is cool. And it is cool. And again, there's companion articles for each one of those. They are the nine essential skills. I said during that podcast series that I almost wish there were less than nine because nine's kind (laughs) of a lot, (laughs) Yeah, but that's what they are. And you can see how these topics though, everything we just talked about, all of those were physical skills, the tactics, and the way we cast and then drift. So one more time, if you're into nymphing, 
we can't recommend that series enough. It's a really in-depth study on the fundamental tactics necessary to succeed with a tight line rig. But let me get to this point. This is important. This series, this critical nymphing concept series, is not just about a tight line style of nymphing. And make sure you hear that. You're out there listening. Make sure you hear and understand that. Mm. This isn't just about tight lining. In fact, every one of these concepts that we're going to talk about applies no matter what rig you choose for nymphing. No matter if you're fishing a fly line and an indicator or if you're on a tight line with any kind of leader build. Not too long ago, we talked about thin leaders, micro thin leaders, standard. You know, we were really getting into the details of all these tight line rigs. And I'm saying these concepts that we're going to go through in this skills series apply to everything. Full stop, right? I like that. All nymphing because they're, they're concepts. But along the way, I think we'll realize that a lot of what we're trying to achieve is often best controlled with a tight line system. That should come as no surprise if you have much nymphing experience under your belt. If you've done many different styles of nymphing, I think everyone would acknowledge you do have more control with the tight line system. You may not prefer it. It may not be your favorite way to fish. But if you really want to control all the elements, you can't really argue against yeah, that. Yeah, it's a great way to do it. All right then, Austin, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's jump in. That's a lot of preface. <laughs> <laughs> Get it out of the way. Right. But this is the one that'll be a little longer because of all that, all the intro stuff, which is good. Yeah. I think it's, kind of, it's good to acknowledge sort of the path we're on to try to build something out here. Um, tonight, though, let's tackle our first critical concept, which kind of breaks the rules and the framework that we've set out for this season already. <laughs> We're going to talk about three things instead of one. <laughs> yeah. You know me. Come on. But these are the three questions to keep in mind while nymphing that kind of lead you to correcting almost every problem that you might have out there. In the last couple seasons of guiding, I've shared this with my friends, and people really seem to connect with these concepts, with these questions. So here are the three questions. The first question is, is everything in one seam? That's what you want to ask yourself. When you're nymphing, is everything in one seam? Is everything in one lane? Yeah, yeah. And nymphing is all about getting good dead drifts, right? Yeah. We said it a thousand times. Just as we alluded to earlier, you know, trout will eat subpar presentations. Yeah. And you can get away with that. But what we're looking for is a good dead drift as our baseline. Um, and then we can deviate and change from there. Yeah. And a good dead drift happens in one seam, one lane. I've talked about this a lot with my clients. If you're fishing a dry fly and that dry fly is skating across, or just crossing seams, you're just kind of just, just <laughs> creeping along a yeah. little out of its lane. We all see it as drag. We go, that's no good. That's no good. It's dragging. And the same thing is happening underneath. Right except, on. of course, you have much more complex currents. The nymphs underneath are tracking down one lane. They aren't swimming around much more than a dry fly is skating across the surface uh -huh. or whatever. Uh -huh. Again, sure, there's, there's some movement down there underneath. There's some swimming and moving of the nymphs, just like there's some skittering around of dry flies. And a mayfly will try to hop off and its wings are wet and it goes back down. Her caddis is coming back for a drink and skittering around over the top. Nice. Yes, there's movement yeah. above. There's movement below. But our goal, like you just said, really needs to be a dead drift. And the most important thing about a dead drift is that it is in one lane of water, one seam. Yeah, yeah. And a good way to do that, we talk about controlling the tippet a lot. 
uh, on this mm. podcast and in your articles too. But one of the best ways to keep the nymph in one seam is to keep the tippet in one seam. Yeah. Uh, where that tippet is, your flies will inevitably follow somewhere mm. underneath close by. Um, and two, if you have a cider in your system, if you're tight lining with a cider or, or whatever rig you have on, it's best to keep that cider over top of that same seam too. That is your guideline to tell you, hey, this is your pretty close, precise mm-hmm. area that you're drifting in right now. And you ought to ride right. that seam. Yeah. The fly is going to go where, where the tippet is. Mm-hmm. It has to follow the tippet. Now on top, we can manage that. On a dry fly, you can't, I can't quite see the tippet, you know, laying on the water. But yeah. you know where it is. Mm-hmm. And you know what you need to do with mending and even within the cast itself, providing S-curves, and you're trying to provide slack up top. Underneath, very much slack at all really becomes messy. That's a good point. I think I think sometimes when we assume, going back to the podcast we had, where is it more difficult to get a good dead drift on a dry or, or a nymph, you know, that drag is so obvious on the surface uh, when we get it on a dry fly. Yeah. And, and we can know that's not good. But when we go underneath and, uh, you know, either we're on a tight line or a bobber or whatever, that drag sometimes is not visual. And as long as the flies are under the water, sometimes we assume they're doing what they should be. <laughs> but th- that's not really the case. And that's why we're talking no. about how important it is to keep it all in, in one lane here. Because the fly should end up in the same lane as where it started. Meaning when yeah. you make the cast and you watch those flies enter, either one fly or two flies, whatever it may be, you should, in the way I describe it, is is lanes if you put your fly in lane one it ought mm-hmm. to come out in lane one like if you picture a swimming pool you got lane lines right lane one lane two that's you nice put your flies in lane one make sure they come out parallel or however those currents are moving you stay in right. them and you take them out in the same spot again i like that <laughs> that would make a good cover shot for bird's this. eye view of the of the swimming pool that's right. an olympic swimming pool with all the lanes yeah that's how i think about it mm. When you were saying parallel, though, right after you said parallel, you said, or whatever path that lane is traveling, you know? And we see that there are complex lanes. Right. You know, they rarely go straight downstream. Right. Of course, we're glad our rivers aren't aren't built like that. (laughs) But it's easy enough to see where the current starts and follow that. I don't know. Find a leaf. Find some bubbles. Everybody tells you bubbles. You don't need either one of those things, though. You don't need a physical object on top of the water to follow, to track where, where the water is going. You can see it, and often it does take some bends around a rock, or there's some reason that it kind of drifts left or right, and you can see that it slows down, and all of those things. You need, mm, hmm, yeah. It's best to learn to read as much as you can about what's going on underneath by seeing what's going yeah. on above. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I love that. That's kind of a concept in itself. But you mentioned the tippet, you keep the cider in the same lane, you absolutely want your indicator in the same lane. If you can make that happen in the cast, mm. you set everything up from the beginning, my gosh, that's the way to go. Yeah, keep the rod tip in the same lane, right? Right on. If you're tight lining, that has to be. Yeah. And dude, that's the number one mistake I think that I see in nymphing. Mm. And I, I do it all the time. I know you do. Yeah. We're not saying, you know, right. that, <laughs> there's no experts, right? I wish. That'd be great. There's no advanced anything. But it is. It's the number one mistake I think we all make is we push that angle out there. We go, yeah, that's, I'll, I'll cast out mm. across a little bit more than I probably should. Yeah. And, and it'll track toward my rod tip, but it won't be that bad. It is. Right. It's drag. Right. You know, that's probably the number one mistake. And we are all way too forgiving about that. 
Yeah, and pushing that angle, right? That's the thing we don't want to do. And not to push that angle does take discipline, right? Yeah. And it takes good waiting and attention to detail in order to get mm-hmm. into position um, and mentally commit and be okay with getting shorter in close drifts and, mm-hmm. and not stuff that's too far away. As you're trying to keep the nymph in the same lane, you're not going to do it for long distances. Nobody's going to keep yeah. it in the same lane for 50 feet. Not if you have any kind <laughs> right. of real currents involved, right? Yep, um, it's true. It's a hard thing to do. How many times do you, again, take you know some pocket water? How often can you get a dry fly to drift even 20 feet yeah. in some pocket water? Right. Dead drift, I know. No, mean. it's so difficult. With all the contrasting currents and swirls and, mm-hmm. and breakups in the water, there's just not a lot of forgiveness there. Right. And it's even harder when the nymph is underneath. There are even more complex currents. So aiming for short drifts, like you said, that's, that's the way to go. Yeah. Not long drifts, but short drift. Don't get enamored with, oh, look how long I was able to keep that drift going. Sure, it might have drifted a long time. How many <laughs> fish ate it? They probably didn't eat it because the drift was poor. The yeah, you dead swung it for most poor. of the time. Yeah, some kind of movement on it. Unintentional movement. <laughs> yeah. And the fish reject it, usually right? Everything's usually in sometimes. So that was question one. Is everything in one lane, in one seam? What's our second question? Our second question of the night is, is my fly low enough for long enough? Um, So if you aren't catching trout, this is another important question to ask yourself throughout the day. Uh, The best success usually comes from having a nymph near the bottom. Mm -hmm. Again, trout will do anything sometimes, maybe, but, and mm-hmm. sometimes they will eat up towards the surface or in the middle of the column. But most yeah. of the times, the trout we're catching are you know, pretty close to the bottom. Absolutely. I ask myself this a lot, and, I, and I've started sharing this question with other people. Like I said, people seem to connect with these three questions pretty good. They're simple. It does answer so many other questions that you have out there. Like, why aren't they eating? Well, is my fly low enough for long enough? Yeah. Like you said, almost all the good stuff in a river happens down very low near the bottom. And trout can eat wherever they want to in the water column, but most of the good stuff happens when you're low. So if you're not catching fish on a nymph, start asking yourself, am I low enough for long enough? Yeah. Let's say even if you kind of determine that, wow, trout are looking up right now. Those are good days too, right? Yeah, yeah. I you take know, that. They start eating on the drop. They start eating a tag fly if you have yep. a two-fly system, whatever. But you start to kind of determine, wow, these fish, these trout are looking up and they are, you know, moving, they're, they're drifting up a little bit, eating, and then going back down where they came from near the bottom. But they are willing and kind of eager and maybe even targeting that middle zone. Well, even if you find a day like that, and you're going to find plenty of those days, yeah. lots of times during a hatch or for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you will find plenty of those days. But even when you find that, you still want to get in that middle zone pretty quick then. Yeah. Right? Right. right. So are you low enough for long enough? That question doesn't mean, am I right on the bottom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to point that out. It just means what it says. Am I low enough? Well, if my target zone is the middle, then I want to get in the middle, you know, and I want to do that pretty quick and I want to stay there for as long as possible. I don't want to be under them, under their target zone. But am I low enough for long enough? That's, that's a key. And the long enough, it comes down to drop time and drift time. Mm-hmm. If you're taking two thirds of your drift to finally get into the strike zone at the bottom, but trout are only eating in the strike zone, mm-hmm. then all that drop time is wasted. And, and right we talk on. about the same concept with getting in touch with your flies as fast as you can. Right. So you're, you're getting the most out of your drift as possible. Now, if, you, if you're waiting on drop time, if you're waiting for, you know, you cast way up. So by the time it gets five <laughs> feet in front of you, it's where you want it. That's all wasted yeah. time. You don't have to fish that way. Um, and it's, in our opinion, not the most efficient way to get that done. 
No, you need to spend time down in there. I've written about drop time and drift time. And this is, again, maybe something you don't think about right away. I don't think anybody really thinks about that right away. They're trying to, you know, get to fly out there in the right way. And yeah. You said a good thing there. If most of your drift has the fly dropping through the water column, but the trout are only eaten near, very near the bottom in what we call the strike zone, it's wasted. You're wasting all that drop time is wasted time. Now, if they start to hit on the drop, that's fun. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That probably is going to give you some data that mm, maybe I should target that middle zone. Again, right. that's, those are more unusual circumstances, right. but they certainly happen. And so that commitment to get down in the, into the zone, well, that's what it is. There's, there takes some commitment there. And we're going to talk about different ways to get down in there quicker and whether we want to get down in there quicker in some of these upcoming episodes. That yeah. could be more weight. You could use less weight. You want to know what layer of water you're targeting. What is producing the most takes? And we're saying it's fair to say that most times that's low and in the strike zone. So get down there quick. But then why scrape the bottom if you don't have to? Because you're probably going to hang up, right? So riding that strike zone is something we talked about in the nine essential skills series. And we're touching on it here again. Get your fly down in there. Keep it in there. That's the concept. Get your fly where the trout are feeding, in the zone that the trout are feeding, and then keep it there for as long as you can uh, for the whole length of the drift, if you could, you know. And so am I low enough for long enough? And low sometimes has the component of being very slow, or it needs to have nice. the component of very slow. And it's wintertime. Trout are eating eggs. They're going to eat eggs all winter, even though most of the eggs are, I think, not really drifting around down there. Our spawn was over well over a month ago. Um, it's the last major protein source that trout have seen. And I'm sure there's some eggs down there bouncing around. Point is, trout are eating eggs as they do all winter long, every winter. But man, it usually has to be a very slow ride. And there are days when they're a little more forgiving about that. I can just, you know, glide right through the strike zone. But I brought that up because I find more than any other fly, an egg pattern needs to be slow. And it needs to be slow enough for long enough, not just low enough but slow enough for long enough. And that's kind of another concept, but it dovetail, dovetails in here nicely. Yeah. Because there are different parts of that strike zone. And if you think about what a natural egg really does, oh, it's just rolling over the bottom. You know, it's not swimming. <laughs> and so it is slow. And I'll use, we're getting into the tactic, but I'll use split shot and an unweighted fly a lot of times right. if I really want to slow things down and yet not have the eggs stick. Anyway, the concept is get to fly low, get to fly slow sometimes too. Yeah. For over a decade, Smith Creek has helped anglers just like you to free up your hands, hold your gear within easy reach, and keep our waters clean. Smith Creek's family of patented accessories are tested guide tough and backed by good old-fashioned customer service. Crafted from rugged materials like anodized marine-grade aluminum and UV-resistant nylon, Smith Creek products are hand-assembled with pride and built to last. To stay up to date on their latest specials and new product releases, be sure to follow Smith Creek on Instagram at smithcreeknz. Quality you can depend on from a brand you can trust. That's Smith Creek. And, you know, we're talking about the strike zone a lot here, so it begs the yeah. question of uh, how do we know when we're in the strike zone? We talked about this too in the Nine Essential Skills podcast, but yeah. we're really looking for a slowdown of the cider 
or the indicator that we're fishing. A slowdown mm-hmm. signifies that we're no longer fishing or have our flies in the same speed that the current on the surface that we can see uh, yeah. is, is traveling at, is drifting at. And when we see those flies drop, and when they do drop, they encounter slower water, whether it be mm-hmm. in mid-column or, or very bottom, all the way mm-hmm. down, you're going to have uh, encounters with water that's moving slower, and that's going to create mm-hmm. resistance to those flies. And you will start to see either the, the sight or downshift, as we like to say, uh, or the yeah. bobber kind of settle in into a slower pace. And you'll start to see the surface water, bubbles, anything that's uh, uh, riding on the surface, start to pass over your sighter and, and pass yeah. you. And as you reach the bottom, and you may even hang up once or twice, you'll eventually know that you're there and you'll reach the, the terminal slow speed. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It is. It is. That's a good, very good description of it. That's how you can know that you're in the strike zone and know that you're low enough without even touching. <laughs> I was fishing on a Saturday morning. And I was really trying to focus exactly what you're saying because I was fishing egg, egg patterns mm. and uh, I was trying to go slow. And, and sometimes out loud, I was saying, all right, lock in, lock in. <laughs> I was trying to lock into the slowest, uh, slowest uh, strike zone ride that I could get. And uh, I don't know, I was entertaining myself. It was you were saying lock in out loud? <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good. I can picture that. I was that. having fun. <laughs> What's your hookup phrase? Uh, well, remember when we fished before Christmas and I said, what the? <laughs> I thought about that later. So that made me, what the? I'm shocked I caught something. That's your new hookup phrase. What the? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> oh, I found a dumb one. <laughs> that wasn't even, that wasn't even PA gold. No. <laughs> Austin and I fished, uh... A couple of weeks ago now, before one Christmas of our Eve. favorite rivers, right? And on this wild trout river, we found a, uh, <laughs> what is it? PA calls them. Palomino. It's a Palomino. That, we still say Palomino, but PA calls them. Uh, golden rainbow. Golden rainbow trout. That always bugs me because there is a golden rainbow. Isn't it out west? Yes. Anyway. It's, it's that's not what fish. this is. <laughs> no, that's not what this is. <laughs> so we took a picture of it. Where Austin made me take a picture of it for oh, him. Yeah. He said, hey, get a picture of my trophy. <laughs> I've got to hang it on my wall now. Now, to be honest, what did I take? Three shots at that <laughs> fish? Don't. Right? I uh, saw him in there. I said, oh, PA gold. Oh, right yeah. There. He drifts at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I took three three shots. And? Well, he gave me two. And I took three angles at him, I should say. I changed flies once. I took three angles at him. He, he ate twice and I missed or whatever. Very advanced species. Yeah. Oh, he ate. You <laughs> said on him. Oh, I know. I yeah. had him for a second, right? He was on for yeah. a second. And then Austin was waiting up from the other side. And you had a bad light angle. So you <laughs> couldn't see P.A. Gold in there, but <laughs> no. I could. I said, oh, hey, 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 don't don't move any further. You'll spook him. <laughs> he had already relocated a couple times, but uh, we figured maybe he settled down. <laughs> it wasn't long. It was maybe three minutes at the most. No, right. So you backhanded it, and um, I was like, nope. Over five more feet. Oh, there, there, there. Bang. He ate, said, baby. what the? <laughs> I was shocked. I don't know what your hookup phrase no was. No way. <laughs> PA gold. PA gold. Maybe that that'll was... be the cover photo for this one. Yeah. And then you caught a trout out of a John boat. Oh, yeah. That was fun. Those were a fun few hours. That was a fun trip. That's right. And that's why we fish. Yeah. We like that. That's a good reason. Just keep doing this fishing thing. Let me make one more point on this uh, low enough for long enough thing. It's something I see a lot, and I find myself doing this. I'll go for 10 minutes without touching the bottom or, or without hanging up at all. 10, 15 minutes, sometimes a whole run. I'll get to the top of run, and I'm like, I'm fishing really, I'm very efficient. 
the way I'm the way I'm going. This is really great. I'm not hanging up. But then I look back and I go, oh, I didn't catch any fish either. Yeah, right. You know, and I think we can all become very enamored with riding our nymphs through a drift somewhere near the middle of the column. And wow, isn't this nice? Isn't this great? And again, man, if they will eat it that way, good for you. I hope they do it every day. But they won't, you know. And so if you aren't catching trout, then ask yourself, are you low enough for long enough? And you're going to have to hang up once in a while. There is some willingness, some acceptance. Like, "Mm, if I'm trying to ride this real skinny strike zone down there that might be six inches tall, 10, 12 inches tall at the most, then you're going to hang up. It's okay. Yeah. But you learn to kind of read that cider, read that indie, and you, you keep things going, well, especially on a tight line rig. Yeah. And the more comfortable you are, with getting your snags out in a quick fashion and keep moving on upstream, it won't be such a heartache when you do snag bottom. Right on. Absolutely. So that leads really... It becomes part of the game. Right. That really does lead nicely to the third question, third and final question in episode one here. Do I have to be this far away? Mm. I mean it. Like that's a question to ask ourselves. Yeah. And, and the question that we like to ask ourselves is, is not how far can I cast? It's, right. it's how close can I be in order to catch this trout? Yeah. It's much more to our advantage if we can get close to our target and mm-hmm. make good, accurate drifts than, than trying to half-heartedly reach them uh, from far away because we don't feel like waiting or, or whatever reason it may be. But we yeah. want to wait as close as possible. Mm-hmm. All the good things happen when you're close. And many, many bad things happen when you're too far away. Now, you're not going to fish 10 feet away, right? You need to drift. And you probably will, even when you're coming up behind them like we like to. Yeah. You're going to spook fish in a lot of different water when you're 10 feet away. So, like the heaviest sure. water, you, you won't even spook them at 10 feet away. But you're not just going to fish 10 feet away. But boy, you don't want to be pushing it more than like 30 feet away. It, dep- it totally depends on your rig, right? And yeah. It depends on yeah. how big the river is. And, you know, there's a lot of different nymphing systems to meet the circumstances. But yeah, do I have to be this far away? How close can I get? Yeah, advantages of being closer Number yeah. one, I kind of already said, is accuracy. Yeah. Uh, to be able to, the ability to put a fly where we want it, control it through the drift. All the stuff that we just said in the nine essential skills yeah. happens best when we're close because that accuracy is at hand. Um, and the accuracy when, about the where the fly goes and the tip it goes. I say that a lot. Right. That, yeah. All that other stuff that we want in that same lane, that's where the accuracy matters the most. Right. And think about the rod tip. You know, we, we were talking about forcing the angle here a little earlier. Mm-hmm. That rod tip is not going to be in that same lane if you are 30 feet away. And if you are committed, you know, uh, if you are committed to laying line on the water and mending, you're going to be a lot better at mending just 10 feet of line instead of trying to mend 25 feet of line. I don't know anybody who can effectively mend, I mean it, 25 feet of line um, over and over, you know, in some complex currents where we usually nymph. Nobody. Yeah. Can't really think of many people who want to either. That's a good good way to put it. That's right. (laughs) It's not fun. It's a lot more fun to get close, have control over the system. Yeah, yeah. Um, This kind of goes hand in hand with this, but the ability to read water, uh, especially underneath, is much, much easier um, when we can really see it. Uh, So all those currents that we're talking about, when we can really see the fine details of where that water's going and how it's moving and everything like that that a trout may be looking to, um, it's to our advantage to be close so we can really see what's happening. See it when you're close, for sure. You get better strike detection too. Mm. I mean, the more line you have out there, the less connected you are with your fish. And when they eat, it has to transmit through a line. 
I don't care if it's visual or by feel. We'd rather be visual, but, yeah. but the feel is in there too. Anyway, with more line out there, uh, there's also more chance for you know bad things to happen. You don't get a good hook set. Right on. First of all, the strike detection is less. Then you don't get a good hook set. Yeah, a lot of ground to cover. Absolutely. And you know when you do hook a fish at long distance... Wouldn't you rather hook them at shorter distance so he, if you really want to get them in the net? <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, less bad things that can happen at shorter yep. distances. Less space between you and the fish in the net. Yeah, yeah. These are all the good things that happen by just being closer. Yeah. And again, if we hang up on the bottom, at least uh, we're not 30 feet away where right. we have to go retrieve that fly and we have to push through all that water between us and it and spook fish and move water and push currents. Um, that's bad. Uh, if oh, we're yeah. close and we can just reach over with our rod tip and with a quick, um, you know, jerk of the rod tip, get our, our fly back and be back in the, the game mm -hmm. again. That's way better. That's a great point. That's something we can all kind of get wrong. That's something I see a lot of people. Oh, I don't know. They'll take the first cast and it's, it's pretty far away. Yeah. And on a very first cast within the first three feet of the drift, bang, they couldn't see it. They hit where the gravel bar, where it, where it spills into maybe a hole. Maybe they were targeting the hole, but they hit, hit the gravel bar just yeah. above it where it spills out from. They hit that shallow stuff. And then you're faced with that choice, well, I could break off. Okay, fair enough. And that might spook fish too. Or you're going to go get it. And you haven't even fished the hole yet. Right. But if you approach it, you know, yep. instead of casting that 30, 35 yep. feet away, if you'd have approached it at 15 or 20 feet, and then the next 15 to 20 feet, and then the next 20, 25 feet, whatever, pick your number. You can work into it better. Like you said, when you do hang up, then it's not a big deal. You don't go, oh, come on. Right. You just go, ah, it's all right. I already fished most of that anyway. Yeah. And I feel like anglers are, are more inclined to break off when they're at distance because they don't yes. want that to happen. You know, yes. They think ahead to what's going to, I've been thinking about this spot as I went to sleep hmm. last night. Now I'm yeah. finally here and I blew it and I'm going to have to, I'm not yeah. walking through that. I'm going to break it off. Yeah. And one, you, you lose a fly. Two, you may yeah. also spook the fish anyhow. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just think about it. Yeah, it's not fun. Right? You take no. a lot of the fun away. <laughs> yeah. So do I have to be this far away? That really is the third most consequential mistake I see anglers making is just trying to, trying to push the distance way too much. Taking that distance out too far leads to too many problems. Like we just said, you have many advantages by staying closer. It keeps us in control and it's more fun because you have that control. Fewer bad things happen. Yep. Yep. Anything else, Austin, along these same lines? That's all three questions. Yeah. I kind of want to go back to the, the idea of drop time okay. and, and what that means. There are scenarios I think I find myself in where maybe the conditions are, are low and clear and I have spooky trout and I want to be able to put a, a cast over a fish at a certain level, mm -hmm. uh, yet not wait up close enough that I'm going to mm -hmm. spook that trout. Mm -hmm. And I, I've used the, the drop time to my advantage in those situations before where I may make a longer cast on a lighter fly and try mm -hmm. to calculate that drop time for a fly. And uh, I was curious about what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot to that drop time, drift time. We'll tackle a little bit of that next week, really, when we talk about trying to have more influence or less. We'll talk about it even a little bit more when we get to, I think it's episode five, when we talk about weight. Because you could get down there and have a much quicker drop time, or you could really extend the drop time by, you know, having lighter weights like you're talking about. I think, too, that flies just plummeting through the water can actually put fish off in the conditions you described, in the shallow, skinny, clear stuff. Yeah, um, I, yeah I'm with you. I, I'm going to extend that drop time. Also, in those many times in those conditions, 
I feel like we have fish that are more willing to kind of come off of that bottom mm. and maybe feed mm. mid column. And so I'm trying to less space to move. Yeah. My target zone in that case often does become the middle. If you're fishing water that's like just a foot deep and you get into that middle column, then, you know, you're six inches off the bottom. That's probably right. good enough. You're right there in the fish's face and just slightly above them. That's where they eat the most. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking when we were talking about that scenarios where I've been in, where I've, I've seen a trout or I've, I've uh, spotted a trout mm-hmm. and maybe I'm not fishing dry dropper or whatever it might be. There's other ways to go about catching that fish. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I've definitely utilized lighter flies in a, a sort of, a, again, a calculated drop time so that when my fly eventually reached that trout, I was in a reasonable distance of that fish going to move and eat, and eat it. Um, you know, that's not the only thing you could do there. But again, just just something I've thought about. I like that. And again, in that scenario, you brought up dry dropper being a really good option. It certainly is. And when we get to episode three, we'll talk about suspension advantages. Well, that's one of the advantages. You can set yeah. it and it just helps the fly come along in that mid column if that's where you want it. You yep. can set it so that your maximum depth, you know, it, it can't achieve the bottom. And that, there you go. You know, you can really extend that long drop time or it'll drop into that maximum depth. Um, you could set it so that it's only, you know, six inches off the bottom. That's also, yeah. you know, in a, that's also like in a perfect world, you would just have a nice gravelly bottom without the next rock getting in your way, <laughs> know. you know? That's yeah. fun. It is. We said, it, you know, it's fun catching PA gold and jo- joking around and having a good time. <laughs> but yep. for us and so many other people, the, these details, these details are fun. It's, it's uh, enjoyable just to try to improve every time we're out there and really understand what's going on. All right, there it is. Season 10 is rolling. So remember these three questions about nymphing. No matter what rig and what style of nymphing you're doing, these questions always apply. Is everything in one lane? Is my fly low enough for long enough? And do I have to be this far away? An honest evaluation of those questions will always lead you to the corrections necessary to catch trout, or at least to get great drifts and feel good about what you're doing. Hey, next week we're tackling another critical nymphing skill. And that one will be all about having more influence or less influence over our flies. Hey, thanks to our sponsors for this season and thanks to all of you out there for being part of this whole thing. All right then, Sir, Sir Austin Danda, will you read us out? (laughs) That's the type of acknowledgement I should have after catching PA gold. Oh yeah, (laughs) royalty. Yeah. Okay. So remember, the Trout Bitten Project is a free resource for all anglers. The Trout Bitten website hosts over 1,000 articles with endless stories, commentaries, tactics, tips, and more. Find what you like through the top menu and through the search page. Navigate by way of the categories and the tags, too. Be sure to find the Trout Bitten YouTube channel, now featuring the Trout Bitten Tip Series, the Fish and Film Series, and the Trout Bitten Flybox, all in collaboration with Wild Media. Thank you for listening to the Trout Bitten Podcast. Please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a comment, because it really does truly help. Until next time, friends, fish hard, enjoy the day, and find your life on the water. Oh, nice pause. Nice. <laughs> That's professional. Yeah, I've done this before. Ten seasons deep. We know what we're doing. Yep.
the three, the big three. It's a beautiful thing. I want to get in the middle. Sounds like a safe place. Those are good days, too. I take that. Lock in. Lock in. Oh, there, there, there. Bang. What the? And that's why we fish. Just keep doing this fishing thing.